NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. What's the hottest place to see and be seen if you're a Republican presidential hopeful? The Iowa State Fairgrounds in Des Moines, of course. Also, the rising cost of COVID. Hip-hop at 50. And my colleague Lauren Freyer brings us the story of a teenage couple who challenged expectations. It's part of a new series from NPR's Rough Translation podcast. Both of them had to accept that they were going to go against all of these traditions in their society and against the path that pretty much everyone they knew had taken. It's Sunday, August 13th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Search and rescue operations continue in Maui as emergency crews work to contain a series of wildfires that have devastated the island. Officials in Hawaii say the death toll from the blazes has risen to at least 93 and is expected to rise as first responders cover more ground. NPR's Jason DeRose reports the wildfires in Maui are the deadliest in the United States in more than 100 years. The largest fire on the western part of the island was in and around Lahaina. More than 2,200 structures were damaged or destroyed when the fire started Tuesday and quickly swept through the historic town. From offshore, you can see charred buildings and the remains of buildings. It looks like a smile without teeth. Maui County officials say 86% of those destroyed structures were residential, leaving hundreds of people without homes. The county estimates it will cost more than $5.5 billion to rebuild what was lost. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Maui. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is criticizing the Kremlin for its actions after Russia withdrew from the U.N.-brokered grain deal. The agreement allowed ships safe passage from Ukraine's ports along the Black Sea. Linda Vasulo reports Blinken spoke before the U.N. Security Council yesterday. Lincoln told the Security Council that all nations should tell Moscow, quote, enough, enough using the Black Sea as blackmail, enough treating the world's most vulnerable people as leverage, and enough of this unjustified, unconscionable war against Ukraine. More broadly, America's top diplomats stress that strengthening food security is essential to realizing the vision of the UN Charter. Blinken also announced that 91 nations have signed a U.S.-drafted communique pledging to end the use of famine, starvation, and food as weapons of war. Meanwhile, the Security Council unanimously adopted a U.S.-drafted statement that strongly condemns both the use of starvation of civilians as a method of war and the denial of humanitarian access. For NPR News, I'm Linda Fasulo in New York. The British Defense Ministry says the Russian mercenary group Wagner may be downsizing. Villa Marx reports the group is facing a number of financial pressures. The UK said the organization that launched then aborted a mutiny in June could soon move to downsize to save on staff costs with a, quote, realistic probability that the Wagner group no longer enjoys financial support from the Russian state. In a regular tweeted update, British authorities said the group's next most likely backup would be neighbouring Belarus, so the group's size might drain that country's modest resources. That's Villa Marks reporting from London. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
This is another day of cleanup for people in Haverhill, North Andover, Lawrence, and Methuen who have flooded basements and other damage in their homes and businesses. The mayor of Haverhill estimates his city suffered well over $1 million in infrastructure damage from the torrential rain last Tuesday. Mayor James Fiorentini says he is concerned about residents. People who are poor up here who are hurting, whose houses were flooded, whose businesses were wiped out, are flooded and don't have insurance. They're covered by insurance, they'll be okay. But the people not covered, they're our concern, and they're the ones we want to help. Fiorentini says he's hoping the Healy administration can provide some assistance. He says he does not think Haverhill can qualify for federal disaster relief. A 21-year-old man from Pennsylvania has died after suffering a medical emergency while hiking in New Hampshire's White Mountains on Friday. Officials say Jason Apreku was hiking with friends when he collapsed on Mount Madison. His friends and passing strangers called for help and performed CPR for several hours. Severe wind delayed a rescue helicopter's arrival, and Apreku died. A Massachusetts man is facing up to five years in prison for making threats against Arizona's governor, Katie Hobbs. 38-year-old James Clark of Falmouth pleaded guilty last week to a charge of sending a bomb threat to an elected official. Prosecutors say Clark sent a message to Hobbs in 2021 while she was Arizona's secretary of state, warning her to resign or face an explosive device detonation. Hobbs faced several threats for her role in certifying the 2020 presidential election in Arizona for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. Drivers in several North Shore communities should expect delays starting tonight because of bridge repairs. The State Department of Transportation says crews will work on bridges connecting Beverly and Salem, Newburyport and Salisbury, and Groveland and Haverhill. Detours and lane closures will be in place during the repairs. This afternoon at Fenway Park, the Red Sox take on the Tigers. It's 73 degrees in Boston with some showers around, a chance of thunderstorms today and highs in the low 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Lots of legal jargon in the air at the moment. As we entered the weekend, news broke of a change to Hunter Biden's legal issues. Negotiations between his lawyers and the Justice Department broke down. And Attorney General Merrick Garland said the, quote, extraordinary circumstances of the case involving the president's son merited the appointment of a special counsel. And as we enter the new week, reports that a grand jury in Georgia may be asked to indict former President Donald Trump on charges related to election interference. We'll start there with NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Good morning, Domenico. Hey, good morning, Aisha. So, of course, we don't know what the grand jury there in Georgia has seen from state prosecutors. But for someone listening whose head is probably spinning with all the (laughs) allegations against the former president, remind us what in the world is going on in Georgia. Well, as you remember, Georgia was a very close election, and it's where Trump and his allies made a push to overturn the result there. You know, this is where Trump was recorded in a phone call telling elections officials explicitly what he wanted. And remember, he lost there by 11,779 votes. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 
11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. One more than we have, Trump said. You know, and George is a good reminder that the result of the 2020 presidential election was upheld after audits and recounts and court cases because of people like Republican elections officials in Georgia and Arizona who didn't bow to the pressure from the man who was then president of the United States. You know, Georgia could also be a really, really important case if an indictment does come down there and if there's a conviction because it's a state case. In other words, if Trump becomes president again, he can't and no no president can pardon him from a state crime. Okay, so now on to Hunter Biden. I'll say the timing leads us to talk about these two things together. Uh, but th these things are really two sides of maybe a different coin or the same coin. <laughs> how, how would you say that? Yeah, if the coin is the uh, presidential election, I guess it's two sides of it. One is a little more lopsided than the other. Um, because, you know, the Hunter Biden tax and gun charges and the charges that Trump undermined and essentially tried to overthrow democracy aren't quite in the same league. But they're apparently going to keep coming up in tandem because of the timeline and because Trump and President Biden are running in 2024. You know, I'm sure the White House would have preferred for the plea deal uh, originally made between Hunter Biden and the Justice Department have stuck because this is likely now going to keep coming up over the next several months. You know, that fell apart. And now we saw this week Attorney General Merrick Garland appoint a special counsel. And that means this is going to continue to make headlines. And despite finding no ties back to President Biden, Republicans in Congress are going to keep up their investigations, looking to really muddy the waters politically. Uh, the various cases and investigations didn't keep former President Trump from campaigning this weekend in Iowa, though questions did follow him there. Tough questions. Here's one caught by a Des Moines Register reporter, Galen Bacaria. President Trump, did you intend to overturn the 2020 election? You know the answer. So vague as always from Trump there. You know, that's one reason he's been so incredibly difficult to pin down over the years. You know, it's like if you asked me a question in this interview and I just said, you know, the answer, Aisha. <laughs> you know? yeah. Maybe maybe you think you know what I'd say, but you never really know, right? Well, I uh, know your thoughts, Domenico, but it always. might be different with Trump. We're, we're just uh, in sync that way. But, you know, look, Trump's efforts to change the results in multiple states are at the heart of the government's case against him. And look at all the ways he did try to overcome return the results. We're talking about not just going to court, which is within any candidate's right, but then going beyond that with his pressure campaign, like in that Georgia phone call we heard, attempting to assign alternative slates of electors, uh, the people who actually cast votes and are supposed to represent the people in the Electoral College. He also pressured top, top officials in his administration, like in his Justice Department, his own vice president. And of course, he encouraged outside pressure, which we saw culminate in violence and death on January 6, 2021. So we know that Trump Trump and his allies attempted uh, what they attempted, and yet he's still popular with Republicans and the frontrunner in early states like Iowa. Uh, in the, the, the minute we have left, uh, Iowa is, of course, a state that's trended very conservative uh, in the recent past. It's also a state where a governor where the governor signed a ban on most almost all abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. Last month, a judge blocked that law. Um, it seems like abortion rights is an issue that keeps coming up 
you know, month after month on the campaign trail and, you know, in, in politics. Yeah, it's interesting because many abortion-related moves that have been backed by Republicans have been very unpopular, but they continue to push them. And that could cost them in the upcoming elections. You know, since Roe was overturned, abortion has been on the ballot in uh, ballot initiatives in seven states, including in red states like Kansas, Kentucky, Montana, and just this week in Ohio. And in all cases, the anti-abortion rights side has lost. And it's really a big reason why Republicans underperformed in 2022 in the midterms there because of abortion rights and Trump and both are figuring to be on the ballot in 2024. That's NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Domenico, thank you so much. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. The number of COVID cases is rising in the U.S. Public health experts believe new variants, summer travel, and heat waves, which force people inside, are partly to blame. And since the national public health emergency ended in May, testing and treatment for COVID have become less available and more expensive. Lisa Cooper, a physician and health equity professor at Johns Hopkins University, has been watching this all play out. She joins us now from Clarksville, Maryland. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Obviously, COVID can still be serious, but with so many people having caught it or the vaccines, should people still be concerned about seeing an uptick in COVID cases? So I would say yes. We know now that it's sort of part of our everyday existence now. People are going to be exposed to it. So the chance of them really getting sick and having to be put in the hospital is much lower. But that's true for young, healthy people. And it's not true for people who are older or people who have chronic medical conditions. So things like heart disease or diabetes or cancer, or if they have a weakened immune system. So we still have to be concerned about those people in our midst who are, you know, more at risk for getting very sick with COVID. When the public health emergency ended, the CDC said that insurance providers will no longer be required to waive costs or provide free COVID-19 tests. So what impact is that having that people may not get free tests through their insurance providers and, and things of that nature? Yeah, I mean, I think for people who can afford it, I think it's not having as much impact because those people can just go out to a pharmacy and buy a test. But as you can imagine, there are other people for whom that's not that easy. So there are older people who are on fixed income, who have lots of other medications that they have to pay for every month. They're worried about you know how much their grocery bill is. And so having to pay out of pocket $20 um, for a test. And if you have a large family, I mean, that 20, I know when I'm trying to get, I have three kids, you try and you start buying those tests, you could easily spend $100. Absolutely. Suppose you need to test one more time because you maybe, you know, it's been a couple of days and people are still feeling sick. Yeah, that's not insignificant. Just like at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw how people from marginalized groups and communities were at a higher risk of infection. Does that mean that right now that those same groups with less resources, with less money, less access, that they may be more at risk? I think for sure, because if people aren't able to afford those tests, uh, they're going to be going out and maybe unknowingly infecting other people around them. And also, we know that people from those same communities also have higher rates of the chronic diseases, the diabetes, the heart disease, 
that already place them at risk for being sicker if they do get COVID. And so we could see these infection rates actually affecting communities of color and, you know, people with low income disparately again. And there are treatments now, you know, we've talked a lot about Paxlovid. Are people still able to access that? Well, you know, so Paxlovid was available for free during the public health emergency. The federal government paid about $500 for a course of Paxlovid per person. But now that the public health emergency is over, the cost of a course of Paxlovid treatment is actually $1,000. There are lots of people who can't afford to do that. So what options do you have if you're underinsured or uninsured? What options do people have at this point? Yeah, well, so the government has created some programs for people who don't have health insurance so that there will be places where they can go and get uh, free Paxlovid and also free access to tests. I think the problem is that a lot of people don't know where to go for this right now. And so I think what's going to be important is for people to stay in touch with their doctors during this time so that when you know, someone in their family or when they themselves get sick with COVID-19, that they can get a prescription and that they can find out where these resources are. Because again, it's not as easily available as it was earlier during the pandemic. That's Lisa Cooper. She is a physician and health equity professor at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aisha. listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8.18. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR. Not only has it been very hot in Florida, but also it has been a record year for sea turtle nests. Researchers are studying the effect of heat on sea turtles. It's 73 degrees in Boston with showers around. A chance of thunderstorms today. Highs in the low 80s. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. The death toll from the catastrophic wildfires in Maui has risen to at least 93. Officials in Hawaii say the blazes have left much of the island in ruins. More than 2,200 structures have been destroyed, including many homes and businesses. Former President Donald Trump could be facing additional criminal charges this week. Federal prosecutors in Atlanta could indict Trump for his alleged efforts to overturn the state's results of the 2020 election. Ukraine says it's advancing along two fronts in its counteroffensive to push Russian forces out of occupied land. 
Ukraine is also pledging to defend its territorial waters in the Black Sea. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. In the world's most populous nation, which is now India, with more than 1.4 billion people, arranged marriages are normal. Parents usually find spouses for their children based on caste or religion. Now a younger generation is pushing back, sometimes leading to fractured families or violence at home. My colleague, Lauren Freyer, spent five years as NPR's India correspondent, and she's reported a new series for NPR's Rough Translation podcast. It's about love, marriage, but also secret notes, a threat of suicide, and a vigilante group that goes by the name of Love Commandos. This is a group that helps people escape and elope with a person of their own choice. The group also manages their marriage paperwork, helps them get a marriage license, register their marriage, gives them a place to stay in a safe house in Delhi to start their life as newlyweds away from threats from their families. And in the summer of 2018, I went to this secret safe house in Delhi. I met the head of the commandos on a street corner outside of a metro stop in Delhi. Yeah, his name is Sanjay Suchdev. And he wouldn't tell me where the safe house was. I had to follow him. He hops on a motorbike. I hop in an auto rickshaw with my producer. And he literally does everything short of like blindfolding us so we wouldn't see where we were going. We wind through these narrow alleyways. We did like five or six turns so we would lose track of where we were going. And eventually we end up at the heart of Pahargunj. And this is a Delhi neighborhood that's famous for backpacker hotels. It's near a train station. There are also some brothels. And we pull up next to this nondescript four-story building. And he opens the door to this secret safe house. Welcome. It is our base shelter, base shelter of the Love Commandos. Inside the shelter, I met couples. Some of them hadn't been outdoors in two months, they said. Part of the deal of this shelter protection is you put your safety in these men's hands. So they confiscate your cell phones. You'd have no contact with your family. You wait weeks, sometimes months, for the commandos to get you a marriage license, register that marriage license with police and get you police protection if you need that. And only after they're confident that you will be safe on the outside do they let you go. I mean, what did the couples there tell you? Some of them had these dramatic escape stories. And a couple months later, I started to hear from them. And I heard, you know, even more dramatic versions of their escape stories and violence that they faced. And I also started to hear different versions of life in that shelter, versions that I found pretty troubling. 
Well, so it sounds like the safe house may not have been so safe for them after all. Like, what did they tell you? They described long days of cleaning and cooking and running the shelter themselves, being asked to fork over large sums of money to the commandos, and even being asked to give foot massages to some of the love commandos. And then <laughs> the real shocker came. Owner of NGO Love Commandos has been arrested for allegedly harassing and blackmailing interfaith couples who sought help at his shelter home in Delhi. To be clear, the Love Commandos are charged with six offenses, including extortion for demanding and taking money from couples in their care, and with wrongful confinement for allegedly keeping couples longer than was necessary in the shelter for their safety. Sanjay Sachdev and his colleagues have repeatedly said they are not guilty. They have entered a not guilty plea in court. They're still awaiting trial. But Sachdev says he's the victim here of a big misunderstanding and of a political conspiracy. Because Prime Minister Narendra Modi is a Hindu nationalist, and under him, forces of tradition have been really emboldened. Sanjay Sachdev has been affiliated with a few different opposition parties. And when he was arrested, he said, this is a political conspiracy against me. Why was Sachdev even doing this? Like, with so much stacked against him, why did he say he was really putting himself on the line to help these other people? I mean, I've spent years thinking about that, about his motivations. And I think what he would say is that he just believes it's right. He just believes that young people should have a right to marry who they choose. And one of those couples were Surya and Akanksha. And for safety reasons that will become clear later in the story, I'm only going to use their first names here. But Surya and Akanksha grew up as neighbors. And what happened was what happened to a lot of teenagers. Love is a beautiful feeling. They're 15 and 17 and they fall in love. The difference is that Surya and Akanksha are from different castes, and many people in India feel that you should marry within your caste, and you should also marry the person that your parents arrange for you. Both of them had to accept that they were going to go against all of these traditions in their society and against the path that pretty much everyone they knew had taken. That's a lot for a teenager in love to have to deal with. How did they figure this out? They come up with three plans. Plan A, we'll convince our parents, they'll accept our relationship, we'll win them over, they'll love that we're together. Plan B is if our parents don't accept our relationship, we're going to have to run away and we're going to have to elope. And plan C is suicide. My goodness. And they hope it doesn't reach that, but they say if we're not allowed to be together, we're going to send a drastic signal to everyone in our community, to other parents in this situation. Surya and Akanksha sneak around for years. And then on Akanksha's 21st birthday, her parents call her into the living room and they say, congratulations. We've arranged a marriage for you to a guy on the other side of the country. Akanksha is horrified and she gives them a surprise of their own by saying, well, I can't marry that guy. I want to marry the neighbor, Surya. 
So how do her parents react to that news? They're pretty adamant that she doesn't get to choose. They say, no, don't be silly. You're not marrying the neighbor's son, Surya. We've found a perfectly good match for you within our cast. And they take away Akanksha's phone so that she can no longer text Surya. But the couple find ways to communicate. They start slipping notes back and forth through a window in the bathroom. And one day, Surya slips a note with just one letter. And Akanksha knows exactly what it means. The letter B. Plan B. Right, plan B. But in this case, it means let's run away together. Akanksha gets permission to attend computer class, and she leaves her computer class one morning. Surya pulls up on a motorbike outside. She hops on the back of the bike, wraps her arms around his waist, and they run away together. But they go to the train station, and they board a train, and they start zigzagging across India. Akanksha's father and Surya's mother start to chase them. And it worked. Surya and Akanksha decide to go back to their parents. But just to be safe, they take out an insurance policy. And that is they decide to get married. And it's a done deal. And then they reunite with their parents. And Akanksha says her father is livid. Surya and Akanksha immediately recognize their parents have no interest in allowing them to stay together. And then it gets worse. Akanksha says her extended family takes her away and locks her up. Now, I just want to be clear. I am telling you Akanksha's side of the story. I did not reach out to her parents to verify this. I did verify it with Surya and members of Surya's family and the Love Commandos, which helped document their escape. But I have not reached out to Akanksha's parents out of consideration for her continued safety and well-being. And she says her family beats her, even her grandmother. And she told me she remembers the feeling of the rings on her father's fingers as his fist hit her face. My goodness. And at some point into this ordeal, Akanksha manages to steal her aunt's phone and send a text off to Surya. She's able to send just one line of text. The text says... I am alive, I'm in this village, but I think they might kill me. And Surya, he doesn't dare respond, but he makes one phone call to the only group he thinks can help them, and that's the Love Commandos. And so the Love Commandos help Surya get to Akanksha's ancestral village and try to rescue her. And at the same time as the Love Commandos and Surya are trying to get to that village, Akanksha's family is telling her, he's not coming for you. He's never coming for you. You need to file rape and kidnapping charges against Surya. It's the only way to save our family honor. You need to say he tricked you into marrying him and that everything that's happened was against your will. And after more than a week of this, she says, fine, take me to the police station. I will literally say whatever you want. I will file charges against Surya. Oh, no. So she's going to betray him? And they sit her down in a police station, one parent on each side, and the police officer turns on a tape recorder and says, do you know a man named Surya? What did he do to you? And she says, yes, I know a man named Surya. He's my husband, and I want to be with him. And the police are like, well, that's not what you're supposed to say. 
she says, the police stop the tape, rewind it, turn it on again. Do you know a man named Surya? And Akanksha repeats, he's my husband and I want to be with him. This is so dramatic. It's like a movie. Like, how do our parents react? Well, her parents are like, we're done. Like, we are washing our hands of this daughter that we can no longer control. And they walk out. And she's left at this police station with only the clothes on her back, no phone, no nothing. It's getting dark. And then Surya walks in. And I asked them later about that moment and what it felt like. And Surya told me it was like putting a fish back in water, like coming back to life. And so then after he comes in, it's the love commandos who've come to help, right? The love commandos help Surya get there and help both of them get to Delhi and to their safe house. Sachdev registers their marriage with local police. He arranges police protection and they start the healing process and they meet other couples for the first time who are in their shoes. It sounds like in this story that the love commandos and Sachdev is doing something noble, right? So how did he come to be portrayed as a villain and arrested? So in the shelter, I told you there was bonding among the couples, but it was also pretty intense. It's this like crazy Spartan boot camp with no contact with the outside world. And rifts, arguments start to form among the couples. Surya and Akanksha were very happy with the treatment they received from the Love Commandos, But a lot of other couples, in fact, most other couples that I have spoken with, they start to doubt the love commandos. And when Surya and Akanksha leave the shelter, other couples, more disgruntled ones, they decide to become whistleblowers. And they actually turn Sajdev in. And the tide just completely turns on him. He was charged with criminal intimidation, extortion, wrongful confinement, holding couples against their will. Now, Sachdev has pleaded not guilty. He denies any wrongdoing, and so do his co-defendants, the other love commandos. And so in our podcast, I spend a lot of time exploring who Sanjay Sachdev really is, what life was like in this safe house, and the stories behind all those headlines, you know, whether he is a hero or a villain. Lauren, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's really an incredible story. Thank you so much for having me, Aisha. Download NPR's Rough Translation podcast for Lauren Freyer's investigation into the Love Commandos. And if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. It's a record-breaking year for sea turtle nest on the coast of South Florida. That's due in part to conservation efforts like lighting regulations and nest monitoring. Now researchers are trying to get ahead of the next challenge, changing temperatures. Member station WLRN's Yvonne Zoom-Tobel reports. It's 6.30 a.m. and I'm enjoying a bumpy ride on a utility vehicle. So every morning at sunrise we're out here. That's David Anderson, a conservationist with the Gumbo Limbo Nature Center in Boca Raton. He's the 
coolest time of the day. Uh, the sunrise is always beautiful, so it's a, it's a nice time to be out. From March to October, Anderson and his crew survey nesting and hatching activity for green, leatherback, and loggerhead sea turtles along this five-mile stretch of beach. Anderson says it's been a great year for sea turtles. Thousands of nests marked with orange wooden stakes spread across the beach as far as the eye can see. So far, Boca Raton has counted over 1,300 nests. Anderson spots one that hatched overnight. It does collapse a little bit like a sinkhole, so it usually leaves a little bowl-shaped depression on the surface, and then you see all the little hatchling prints going through the water. They're tiny impressions in the sand the size of raindrops. A bit later, Anderson and his colleague find larger tracks from a fox that was trying to dig out another nest. They decide to save some of the baby turtles that just hatched. We'll only stick our hand down in far enough to rescue any that are near the surface because as, as it gets hot today, any, any hatchling just beneath the sand, of course, will just you know, succumb to the heat. We'll cover this back up, allow it to hatch naturally again tonight. Sand temperature is important to baby sea turtles. It determines when they hatch and what gender they'll be. Anderson and his colleagues want to know more about the effect of heat, so they work with a local university to collect some of the turtles. This particular nest has a research cage over it to capture all the hatchlings. It hatched last night, and the cage is full of baby green turtles. These hatchlings are taken back to the FAU Marine Lab where their sex will be determined, male or female. And inside this nest, it's what's called a temperature data logger to record the temperature during the two-month incubation. Florida Atlantic University's Marine Lab has been conducting a sex ratio study for the past 20 years. Chelsea Bennis is a researcher. So we like to say hot chicks and cool dudes. So warmer sand means usually more females in the nest and cooler temperatures around the nest means more males. Last year's numbers show 12 to 30 percent were males, depending on the turtle species. That's still okay because females mate with multiple partners and can store sperm. But researchers want to get ahead of any impact a warming planet could have on the male population. Anderson says sea turtle conservation has just come too far for conservationists to let their guard down. These animals that take a long time to reach maturity, 20 or 30 years or so, depending on the species. And, you know, we're seeing the, the fruits of the labor from, you know, decades ago. So far this year, the number of eggs simply hatching is high, which is a good sign since only about one in a thousand baby sea turtles makes it to adulthood. For NPR News, I'm Yvonne Zumtobel in Boca Raton. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. This is another day of cleanup for people in Haverhill, North Andover, Lawrence, and Methuen. The torrential rain last Tuesday caused problems, including flooded basements and other damages to homes and businesses. In Haverhill, the rain cracked open a century-old sewer line, leading to a large sinkhole in a street. The mayor says residents of a multifamily building forced to evacuate because of the sinkhole might not be able to return home for a few more days. 
Shoppers can skip the sales tax today in Massachusetts. The sales tax holiday weekend wraps up tonight. The waiver applies to most retail goods under $2,500. Exceptions include meals and motor vehicles. Bridge repairs are set to begin tonight in several communities north of Boston. Drivers can expect delays. The State Department of Transportation says detours and lane closures will be in place as crews work on bridges between Beverly and Salem and between Newburyport and Salisbury. This afternoon at Fenway Park, the Red Sox take on the Tigers. It is 72 degrees in Boston. Now some showers around. A chance of thunderstorms today. Highs in the low 80s. Mostly clear tonight with lows dropping to the mid-60s. And you can expect mostly sunny skies tomorrow. Monday's temperatures in the low 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, presenting A Midsummer Night's Dream, now through September 10th. Tickets at Shakespeare.org. Hey, it's Peter Sagel. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape, or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app, and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and y'all better be ready, because it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good morning, Will. Good morning, Aisha. Your intros always make me smile. Oh, and I think you got some good news that has you smiling too, right? I have to say congratulations. You're a newlywed. I uh, got married on Tuesday, and the big ceremony is uh, next Saturday. Oh. And there will be puzzles and games involved. <laughs> excited for you. That is amazing. Congratulations. Thank that you. Thank is you. Amazing news. And so, but we still putting you to work out here. So you got to tell us about this challenge. <laughs> yes. It came from Michael Schwartz of Florence, Oregon. I said, name something found on a map of England. Two words. The last two letters of the first word are the same as the first two letters of the last. And if you go to England, curiously, you can't see this place. You can see it only on a map. What is it? And the answer is Prime Meridian. Ooh, okay, okay. Well, it sounds like y'all blew this one out of the water. <laughs> there were more than 1,800 correct entries, and Jeff Forster of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Jeff. Thank you so much, and congratulations to Will on your wedding. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. I hear that you actually won before, so you've played this before? I did win before in 1999. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So it's been a long time coming for you to get back on again. 
It has. I'm amazed. <laughs> what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? I like to play basketball and I cycle and I'm a baker. I bake uh, bread and cookies. Oh, oh, that sounds very nice. So then I feel like you're definitely ready to play this puzzle because you're going to have the stamina, but you also have the sweetness that we need to get through, right? So you're ready to play the puzzle. I am ready. Okay, take it away, Will. All right, Jeff, I hope this is in your wheelhouse. I'm going to read you some sentences. Each sentence has two blanks. Change the first letter of the word that goes in the first blank to Q-U to get the word that goes in the second blank. For example, if I said the ducks in our blank yard blank a lot, you would say back and quack, as in the ducks in our backyard quack a lot. So here we go, number one. After jogging, I sat on a park blank with a sports drink to blank my thirst. Bench and quench. You got it. Number two, the price of a blank of oil to the exact penny is not something to blank about. Here it is again. The price of a blank of oil to the exact penny is not something to blank about. Barrel and quarrel? You got it. How many blocks of limestone can a rail car blank from a blank? Here it is again. How many blocks of limestone can a rail car blank from a blank? Oh, carry from a quarry. You got it. The chef's, that's apostrophe S, the chef's blank in the world of cooking was making blank Lorraine. Niche and quiche. You got it. If you haven't heard about a manuscript you submitted months ago, it would be blank smart to blank your editor. Uh, mm. Was it quicksmart? And uh, that second QU word is a synonym for question. You would send uh, something to your oh. editor. Uh. Very smart to query oh, your editor. Yeah. You got it. The blank was two members short of a blank to conduct business. Oh. Something in quorum, is it? Yeah, yeah. Forum and quorum? Yeah, forum and quorum, good. The witty writer was most blank for being eminently blank. Oh. Uh, so it sounds like qu quips. Oh, no, not quip. No, not quips. Quote. Oh, Noted. yeah, you want to, you're on to the track. The witty writer was most blank for being eminently blank. Yeah, notable, quotable? Oh. You got it. <laughs> okay. Here's your last one. The words blank and blank both mean to exhibit unsteadiness. The words blank and blank both mean to exhibit unsteadiness. And the first one is if you're trying to make a decision, you might... This first word and the second one is in terms of your voice being unsteady. Wavering and quavering. Waver and quaver. You got it. Oh my goodness. I kind of got some of these, but I got them late and I could, I, it took me a little time to get it together. But you did a great job, Jeff. So <laughs> you awesome. How do you feel? I feel great. That was a lot of fun. That was a great puzzle for you. I'm glad you got it because we would have been sitting here for a little while trying to figure out some of these. <laughs> so for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Jeff, what member station do you listen to? We are sustaining members of WESA. Oh, we love to hear that. That's Jeff Forster of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you. Okay, Will, so what's next week's challenge? 
Yes, it comes from listener Dan Pitt of Palo Alto, California. Name a famous contemporary singer, six letters in the first name, four letters in the last, the second, fourth, sixth, eighth, and ninth letters in order spell a repeated part of a song that everyone knows. What is it? So again, a famous contemporary singer, 6-4, the second, fourth, sixth, eighth, and ninth letters in order spell a repeated part of a song that everyone knows. What song is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, August 17th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Now, a postcard from Italy. Like many places across the world, this summer is a hot one in Sicily. Luckily for Sicilians, there's a long tradition of hot summers and a cool local treat to help deal with the heat. NPR's Adam Rainey brings us this from Grinelli in southern Sicily. This is the sound of summer in a sleepy beach neighborhood in southern Sicily. The sound means one thing, ice-cold granita, a Sicilian classic that's not quite ice cream or even Italian ice. It's more of a creamy mix between gelato and a gourmet snow cone made with sugar, water, and Sicily's standout produce. Lemons, almonds, sometimes even mulberries. Behind the wheel of this minuscule delivery truck, 23-year-old Vincenzo Nastasi. I really like this job. I have a lot of contact with people. It's great. You make friends. Especially when you bring them relief from the heat. At the sound of the bell on her street, Angelina Gabelli comes out right away to greet Nastasi. This heat can kill you, she says, adding, at least people can cool off with granita. Gabelli and her husband buy a pint of strawberry granita to try and get ahead of the scorching temperatures already approaching 90 degrees by mid-morning. Nastasi knows his customers well. Like Lina Aquilino. The usual, he asks her? Yes, she says, and for her, that's roasted almond granita on a brioche. That's the way many Sicilians eat this sweet cold classic for breakfast, served up on a soft, fluffy sweet roll, sprinkled with sugar on top. Aquilino has been coming here for decades. The rest of the year she lives in Torino, at the opposite end of Italy's boot in the far north. That's much closer to the Italian Riviera in Liguria. When asked why she travels here instead of spending summers there, Because the sea is much prettier here. Liguria sucks. She may be joking, but fans of Cinque Terre and Liguria would still disagree. As much as Aquilino clearly loves the place, she says the local government has failed with its upkeep of Granelli. She says they need more services like water and trash collection, both cut off in recent years. Garbage is often dumped on nearby streets. Sandwiched between wetlands and the crystal-clear Mediterranean, Grinelli may be on the map, but even most Sicilians can't tell you where it is. Which is why many who have discovered the place 
keep coming year after year, despite trash on the streets and half-finished homes dotting the landscape. Giorgio Lanzafame is a bus driver from Catania, Sicily's second-largest city, about an hour away. It's paradise here. Flamingos and migrating birds pass through here. I've been coming here for 20 years. It's a spectacular place. The clear and cool seawater is the big draw, and the nearly empty beach, a rarity in Italy. That's where I met Rosella Dugo. She brought her own kids here every summer, and now brings her grandchildren to the same beach. For us, this is the Caribbean. I mean, I've never seen the Caribbean, but this is a really beautiful beach. Back on Nastasi's route, you see a lot of children making memories with their families. Like four-year-old Joelle. He orders his usual, a strawberry granita with a brioche. He then asks his dad to pick him up and show him the back of the truck. His father tells him how the granita is stored in cold canisters so it won't melt. Populated over the years by the Greeks, Romans, Arabs, and Normans, Sicily has dealt with heat for millennia, but nothing quite like the heat these days. Nastasi says that's why these traditions are still so important. When people hear the little bell, they immediately get excited for ice cream and granita. Since it's so hot here, something wonderful and cold is what you need. Adam Rainey, NPR News, Granelli, Sicily. Tomorrow is Admiral Lisa Franchetti's first day on the job as head of the Navy. Tune into Morning Edition for a profile of Franchetti, the first woman to hold the position, and for the answer to why she's starting in an acting capacity. Just tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. For the 50th anniversary of hip-hop's birth, some heavy hitters performed at Yankee Stadium, which is in the Bronx, where hip-hop music was born. Friday's lineup included artists like Run DMC, Lil Wayne, Snoop Dogg, Eve, and Nas. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siukis was there. Tens of thousands of people pressed into Yankee Stadium to witness what promised to be an epic night. Inside, while artists like the Sugar Hill Gang were already performing, many fans outside were still waiting for hours to make their way into the ballpark. And folks of many different generations told me what this night meant to them. Audience members declined to give their last names as police and security tried to usher them into the venue as quickly as possible. One brother and sister from the Bronx, Rob and Carmen, were decked out in full Run DMC style with Kangol bucket hats, Adidas tracksuits, superstars on their feet. They were far from the only ones dressed in honor of their hip-hop heroes. I was born and raised in this area. I was around hip-hop before record was made. I was in the park with all these guys, you know? So to come 50 years later, it's incredible. One young man, Greg from Harlem, showed up with a friend pretty much because his mama told him it would be an education in hip-hop. It was kind of a thing where my mom was like, good old-fashioned, hot. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Well, that's exactly what they got. 
It felt like a royal procession through many eras of this culture. The founding parents of hip-hop were there, DJ Cool Herc and his sister, Cindy Campbell, who threw the block party 50 years ago this week that's now considered a canonical event. Slick Rick performed. So did Cool G Rap, Fat Joe, Lil' Kim, Eve, Ashanti, and members of the Wu-Tang Clan, including Ghostface Killa and Method Man, among many others. While the show was heavy on New York artists, the South got some representation, too, notably with both T.I. from Atlanta and New Orleans' Lil Wayne. Snoop Dogg ruled the stage as a California king. One of the big surprises of the night was a collaboration between Nas, who was expected to do a set, and Lauryn Hill, who was not on the bed. Nearly eight hours after the night started, the show finally closed with a performance by Run DMC in what was billed as the trio's last show ever. By the time they got to my Adidas, many fans in the crowd were waving pristine white superstars in the air. It was a sweet send-off, and despite being nearly 2 a.m., the crowd was still buzzing. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Thanks for starting your Sunday with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Join us next week at City Space. Electropop singer FC headlines our last Sound On music festival of the summer. That's at City Space Thursday, August 24th. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 72 degrees in Boston. Showers around today. A chance of some thunderstorms and highs in the low 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham. It's corn and tomato season, and the farm stand is full of fresh-picked homegrown produce. More at Now Picking at VolanteFarms.com for the full list. The U.S. is pushing talks to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. But is a deal possible? No amount of normalization with any Arab state can manage to shake this issue without Palestine being front and center. 
a closer look at the negotiations to bring Israel and Saudi Arabia together, and what a deal would mean for the region on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on WBUR. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. In this hour, we take you to Maui, where firefighters are continuing to bat down flare-ups and heartbroken residents are slowly being allowed back into Lahaina. Also, fighting on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Some are reading suggestions for romance lovers, and facing as many as six trials, will Donald Trump attend any of them? A defendant's presence is foundational to a trial. For a jury not to have a defendant present is kind of a sign to them that at least he doesn't think this matters very much. It's Sunday, August 13th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The catastrophic wildfires in Maui have left a trail of destruction across the island, destroying hundreds of homes and businesses. At least 93 people have died in the blazes, with that number expected to rise as search and rescue operations continue. Hawaii Public Radio's Bill Dorman reports the wildfires in Maui are the deadliest in the United States in more than 100 years. Hawaii Governor Josh Green is making a plea for patience. The grim process of recovery from the Maui fires continues, but so far only two victims have been identified. Damage estimates have been updated, but remain subject to change. The governor's latest tally of losses is nearly $6 billion. Housing is a top priority. Green wants 1,000 hotel rooms, half for displaced families, and the rest for those arriving to help including workers from the Federal Emergency Management Agency. For NPR News, I'm Bill Dorman in Honolulu. Prosecutors in Georgia will begin presenting their 2020 election interference case involving former President Donald Trump to a grand jury this week. Sam Greenglass from member station WABE reports that two witnesses say they've been called to testify on Tuesday. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has signaled her criminal case is ready to go after more than two years investigating efforts by former President Trump and his allies to subvert the election result. The county courthouse is under heightened security through the end of the week, and now some witnesses who receive subpoenas, a journalist and Georgia's former lieutenant governor, say they will report to the grand jury on Tuesday. Grand jury A meets Mondays and Tuesdays. Given the complexity of the case, prosecutors are expected to begin making their case for criminal charges on Monday, likely allowing the grand jury to hand up any indictment by the end of Tuesday. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. UPS workers are voting on whether to approve their new contract. NPR's Danielle Kay has more. 
340,000 UPS workers are eligible to vote. The Teamsters Union is urging workers to vote yes, saying it's the most lucrative contract in UPS history. Minimum hourly pay for part-timers would be $21. UPS also agreed to put air conditioning in new delivery vehicles, among other concessions. Now, a majority of workers have to approve the deal. Jennifer Hancock has been a part-time package sorter in Richmond, Virginia for more than three decades. She's voting no. For a part-timer who is hired now, they would need to be making somewhere in the ballpark of $25 an hour to have the same buying power that I would have had back in 1991. Workers have until August 22nd to vote. Danielle Kay, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A Western Massachusetts couple is suing state officials for discrimination alleging they've been prohibited from caring for foster children because of their religious beliefs. New England Public Media's Alden Bourne reports. Mike and Kitty Burke are Catholic and live in Southampton. After dealing with infertility, they decided to try and have children by fostering and eventually adopting them. But they say the State Department of Children and Families has denied them from doing so because of their religious beliefs. Those include that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that sex should only occur within such a marriage. They say they also told DCF interviewers they would not assist with gender confirmation surgery for a child if that came up. Will Hahn is the Burke's lawyer. Massachusetts used that discretion as a weapon against religious families who have disfavored beliefs. A spokesperson for DCF said it has not yet been served with a lawsuit and doesn't comment on pending litigation. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. The descendants of a woman whose cervical cells have been used for research for decades without compensation are suing a second Massachusetts company. A couple weeks ago, the family of Henrietta Lacks settled a lawsuit with Waltham-based Thermo Fisher Scientific. Her family has now sued Ultragenics. The California company's operations are largely based in Massachusetts. WBUR has reached out to Ultragenics for comment. Five people are recovering from injuries after a boat fire broke out at the Metropolitan Yacht Club in Braintree yesterday. Braintree police say the people on board were transported to local hospitals with minor burns, smoke inhalation, and cuts. Police and the city's mayor thanked a member of the club who towed the boat into the open water to keep other boats from catching on fire. The Braintree mayor says that club member is a retired police officer. At Fenway Park this afternoon, it's Red Sox-Tigers. It is 74 degrees in Boston with some showers around, a chance of thunderstorms, and highs today in the low 80s. Mostly clear skies tonight, lows in the mid-60s, and tomorrow a mostly sunny Monday with temperatures in the low 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The death toll from the wildfires that swept Maui this week continues to rise. Authorities now say more than 90 people have died, making it the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in more than 100 years. And on western Maui, residents are still having trouble getting answers. Gloria Madden is a longtime Maui resident and shop owner. And our jewelry store is gone. My coworkers are gone. We don't know what to do. 
On Saturday, Madden was trying to figure out, along with a long line of other people who had supplies, how to get back into the town of Lahaina. And all these people are waiting. They want to help their family, and we can't get them there. What's going on? Joining us from Maui is NPR's Jason DeRose. Good morning. Good morning, Aisha. There is a lot of frustration and sorrow in Gloria Madden's voice. Jason, what is going on? Well, Aisha, we are getting a lot of mixed messages from authorities about why residents and others, including us, couldn't get access to the burned area in Lahaina. Among the reasons, they say it just isn't safe. What Maui County authorities did say is that in the largest fire on the western part of the island, in and around Lahaina, more than 2,200 structures were damaged or destroyed since Tuesday when the fire started, and they say 86% of those structures were residential, leaving a lot of people without homes. The county estimates it will cost more than $5.5 billion to rebuild what was lost. Those numbers are staggering. You've been on the ground since Thursday night. What have you been seeing with your own eyes? Well, we have been trying to get to the burn zone around Lahaina, and it has been, in a word, impossible. The area is closed off even to people who live there and want to go back to see if their homes are still standing. Yesterday, we waited in a line for three hours to drive in. And here's what our producer, Janaki Meta encountered talking to police. So is there a reason why residents couldn't just access their homes from here? Yeah, people that's, who up have... to, that's up to the EOC to determine. So they have it shut down over here, okay? Okay, okay. Um, so have you guys turn around, if you guys are turning down the list, go wait in the parking lot. That EOC list he's referring to is kept by the Maui Emergency Operations Center. And despite multiple tries, we have not been able to get on the list. So, so when you were denied access to the road, what did you do? Well, we made our way to a nearby harbor where we found a group of tour boat operators loading supplies onto boats that usually take people out snorkeling or dolphin watching on a Saturday afternoon in August. Instead, they were taking supplies to people still in Lahaina, some people who never left. So these tour boats were able to get into the burn zone? That was the plan. Once they loaded up, we joined them for about a 45-minute boat ride to Lahaina. The Green Mountains give way to beaches and cliffs that give way to sparkling cerulean ocean. It is stunning. Jennifer Kogan is one of the tour operators making these supply runs. We're going to be going just north of Lahaina since that area is secured. And what we've got with us today are a variety of supplies, water, fuel, uh, a huge donation from Maui Gold Pineapples. Uh, we've also got bedding, toiletries, and everything else. Baby also supplies. on the boat was Bully Cotter, who's lived on Maui for the past 50 years and in Lahaina itself for 45 years. He's a surf instructor. His home burned down Tuesday. The surfboards he rents out for classes were destroyed. I'm angry. Uh, there could have been a lot more done to prevent all this. Uh, they told us that the fire was completely contained, so we let our guards down. I escaped behind a fire truck fleeing the fire. Even though Cotter had just experienced this huge personal loss, he was there on the boat to help others. What happened once you reached Lahaina? 
So I should say authorities aren't allowing media into Lahaina, but we could see it from the boat. This is the western, the dry side of Maui. The mountains here aren't green, they're golden. Here's Bully Cotter again. You can see the entire burn mark. So the fire came across because of the wind, it shifted over the bypass, and then it started making its way to a whole nother neighborhood called Waikuli. Not all of Waikuli got taken out, but all the coastline of it did. It almost made it to the civic center. We could see charred buildings and places where there had been buildings. It was like looking at a smile with missing teeth. And then out of nowhere, two jet skis approached the boat we were on, each with a couple of guys on them who were clearly surfers head to toe. What were surfers doing there? Well, they were there to help unload supplies, haul them about 100 yards from the boat to the beach. So all these people on the boat handed down cases of water and garbage bags full of ice and boxes of diapers. Over and over again, these two jet skis went back and forth between the boat and the beach. And on the beach, about a dozen people in bathing suits charging into the ocean, carrying giant package of diapers over their heads, propane tanks, Vienna sausages, and loading them into pickup trucks owned by locals waiting to take them to anyone in need. And you said these people on the tour boat had lost homes and businesses themselves. You know, Aisha, that's what was so moving, to see these neighbors caring for each other, filling in gaps not being filled right now by official channels. And when I asked what they were going to do next, they said they'd rest a bit, then they'd make another supply run on Monday. That's NPR's Jason DeRose on Maui. Jason, thank you so much. You're welcome. Former President Donald Trump faces the prospect of as many as six trials in the next year. And of all the many questions out there about this, here's one we hadn't really thought of. Does Donald Trump have to attend his own trial? That's the title of a new piece in Lawfare by former federal prosecutor Daniel Richmond, who now teaches law at Columbia University. Daniel Richmond, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So first, how might judges approach the challenge of scheduling all of these Trump trials? I think it will be a huge challenge, not just because there are so many of them, but because only two of them have the same prosecutor in common. And unsurprisingly, each prosecutor in court thinks her case is the important one. So it will take some diplomacy and work. And that's not even considering the efforts of Trump and his team that we could expect to be pushing for delay until after the election. So the big question that you pose in your piece is like, does former President Trump need to appear in person for these trials? And I I don't know. I thought you had to appear. You were fair for thinking of that, because at least in the federal system, when you look at rule of criminal procedure 43, it flatly says defendant must be present at every trial stage. So I think what makes things a little complicated is that the flat language of the rule has been, by a number of courts, read to allow for some flexibility that the text does not suggest. From time to time, you'll have defendants who have health problems. And in various cases, you've seen a readiness by trial judges 
to let a defendant take some time off for really extraordinary circumstances. But I don't think any of this should take away from the basic point that the rule demands presence and there better be a really good, very specific and very bounded reason for a defendant to absent himself. And particularly if it's a single defendant case, then it becomes really strange for an empty seat to be there. With being on the campaign trail as the potential nominee for the Republican Party, is that a serious enough justification to say, I can't be at this trial right now? I think it is a good argument. It's a good argument to say, look, there is a general election coming. I, assuming that Trump becomes the Republican candidate, the voters have a strong First Amendment inflected interest to hear from me and to require me to sit in this courtroom without them hearing my voice is inflicting an irreparable injury, not just on me, but on the country. Obviously, that's an an argument that's never been made because this case is novel. So what do you think needs to happen then? Um, I think judges will have to figure out to the extent they can, how they can schedule trials or whether they can schedule trials. And my only small intervention here is that a compromise of attendance but not full time really would undercut the whole notion of what trials are supposed to be about, which is holding a defendant accountable. The rules demand that a defendant be present isn't just a technical thing. A defendant's presence is foundational to a trial. For a jury not to have a defendant present is kind of a sign to them that at least he doesn't think this matters very much. And I think the problem would get even worse if he not only were not present, but were on the campaign trail saying that this was a ridiculous, illegitimate trial. That's Daniel Richman, a professor at Columbia Law School. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear about wild peacocks running amok in Pinecrest, Florida. One veterinarian there explains his approach to controlling their population. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition. Whether you're at the beach or in the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen wherever the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you miss. Download the WBUR app today. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. 
I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. Emergency teams are working around the clock in Maui searching for survivors as wildfires continue to burn across the island. Officials say the death toll has risen to at least 93 and is expected to rise. Former President Donald Trump and his main rival for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, competed for votes at the Iowa State Fair on Saturday. DeSantis is pushing for a big win in the Iowa caucuses in January. The Pentagon says it's developing plans to restructure the National Guard in Washington, D.C. It's part of an effort to address the security breaches that surfaced during the January 6th insurrection. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Four months after the Wisconsin Supreme Court election that gained national attention, Janet Protasewicz has taken office, giving the court a slim liberal majority for the first time in 15 years. It's only been a couple of weeks, but so far the session has been notably messy, with public infighting between the liberal and conservative justices. And it's all playing out as the court prepares to take up cases on hot button issues. Mayan Silver of WUWM in Milwaukee joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, Aisha. So as we mentioned, the new liberal majority has only been in power for a short time. And and already there's been, I guess, how, how can we say this drama? Tell us about what's going on. Right. So the liberal majority really started reshaping the court administratively within days of taking control. They fired the director of state courts, who was appointed by conservatives. They limited the power of the conservative chief justice. They opened up administrative meetings to the public. And they set up a committee to establish recusal rules. That's when a judge sits out a case because of a conflict. Liberal justices say they're just making things more transparent, but conservatives have really responded with bitterness. One conservative justice actually tweeted that there's a, quote, cabal of extreme leftists now running the court. The Chief Justice Annette Ziegler, who's a conservative, called it a coup on conservative talk radio. Meanwhile, Liberal Justice Rebecca Dallet issued a press release in response and said, They've repeatedly asked the Chief Justice to join them in meetings, but she's refused. So keep in mind, this is all playing out very publicly in press releases and comments to the media. So what's the problem with the liberal justice making changes now that they have the majority? Is this just sour grapes or do the conservative justices have grounds for their objections? So some observers say that really liberals aren't doing anything that conservatives wouldn't do if the tables were turned. 
The real problem here isn't all this back and forth. It's really the acrimony and partisanship on the court. I talked to Barry Burden about this. He's the director of the Elections Research Project at UW-Madison. Public trust in the court and you know, the willingness to accept its decisions is going to be lower and much more partisan in the reaction that we see. This is true of the U.S. Supreme Court as well. In Wisconsin, I, I think we're likely to see a similar sort of polarization of public reactions play out. In the meantime, Burden says it'd just be good for the justices to get in a room face-to-face, maybe stop tweeting and issuing press releases. They really have a lot of important work to do. A lot of important work to do. It, it seems like the court does have some really big cases to decide this term. Remind us what's coming up. Aisha, there are big, big topics. We're talking redistricting, election laws, abortion, three of the most contested issues across the country that are going to be before the court soon. Redistricting is the one we're really watching because that has a tight deadline. The case would have to be decided by mid-next year for those new districts to be in place before the general election. That could have big implications for the balance of power in the state legislature, which has been controlled by conservatives for quite a while in Wisconsin. There's already two lawsuits filed within two weeks of the new court. There's also a lawsuit making its way through the system over Wisconsin's near-total abortion ban. And then, of course, election laws will be important because Wisconsin is such a narrow swing state. It's cliche to say that every vote counts, but here we really mean it. That's Mayan Silver in Milwaukee. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. There are new rules designed to rein in U.S. investments in key technologies in China. They're on top of a Biden administration decision this past fall to block exports of advanced microchips to China. All that will make it harder for China to get its hands on cutting-edge tech. And that may be a win for Washington for now. But as NPR China Affairs correspondent John Ruich reports, it may also accelerate Beijing's push to be more self-reliant. The instinct toward and mythology around self-reliance goes back decades for China's ruling Communist Party. Late leader Mao Zedong talked about zili gengsheng, or self-reliance, a lot. And this propaganda song from the early 1940s extolled the virtues of self-reliance in agriculture. But arguably the biggest technological breakthrough ascribed to self-reliance early on was this one. Three, two, one... That was China's first nuclear test in 1964. It came just five years after the Soviet Union pulled out of an agreement to share nuclear technology with Beijing and then recalled all its advisors. I think if you look at the chronology, what you find is that China's leaders have been focused on self-sufficiency and technology for a very long time. Chris Miller is author of the book Chip War and a professor at Tufts University in Boston. He says there's been a pattern for decades of strategic support when Beijing identifies a technology that it thinks is important. It's put large funds from both the national government and provincial and local governments, as well as state-owned enterprises, behind priority technology sectors. It's built out uh, large capacity in manufacturing for these sectors. It's given these companies privilege access to China's large domestic market. A recent case in point, cars. This year, China overtook both Germany and Japan to become now the world's largest auto exporter. And again, that's thanks to a decade of government investment and preferential access to China's market. 
Under leader Xi Jinping, the self-sufficiency drive has accelerated. Microchips were identified as a priority almost a decade ago. In 2015, the government launched a program called Made in China 2025, an industrial policy to turn China into a world leader in 10 key sectors, including IT, robotics, and aerospace. And he introduced a policy called dual circulation in 2020. It aims to grow domestic demand in the economy, to reduce dependence on foreign markets, and fuel indigenous innovation. Here's Xi speaking about priorities at a party congress last fall. We will accelerate the implementation of the innovation-driven development strategy. We will speed up efforts to achieve greater self-reliance and strengthen science and technology. To underscore the point, he promoted five leading scientists into the policymaking Politburo. Yu Jie is a senior research fellow on China at Chatham House in London. I mean, I cannot think of any governors in any of the national government at this stage now to have such a strong science presence at all. She says U.S. policies may serve as a catalyst for China's tech indigenization drive. I think Beijing has decided already that there will be no return on more benign bilateral relations with the United States. And particularly the competition with science and technology has been the key component for that. You expects China to pour more money into R&D. Emily Weinstein is a research fellow at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Anyone who says that we're going to stop China from indigenizing by cutting off access to things is kidding themselves. And she believes the Biden administration is well aware of this. I don't think I would ever advise the administration to not go forward with a policy because they were afraid of pushing China too hard on accelerating indigenous efforts. China is already there and they're already moving full speed ahead. The best Washington can hope for, she says, is to slow Beijing's march. John Ruich, NPR News. We've been talking with some of our favorite authors over the last few weeks about recommendations for summer reading, books old and new that we should read. And today we're looking for love. That's where Robin Lee comes in. She's an actor and a writer. Vogue magazine called her smart, sexy romance, the idea of you, the sleeper hit of the pandemic. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So I feel like we have to start with your recommendation for a book that's about a romance writer. It's called Seven Days in June by Tia Williams. Tell me about this. It sounds spicy. So tell me about this. (laughs) Tia Williams is a, a good friend of mine. And her novel, Seven Days in June, was released the summer of 2021. It was hot and sexy and laugh out loud funny. Tia is like the queen of wit and description and detail. And she has all these characters and specifically New York characters and Brooklyn, like the Brooklyn literati. And it's, she just does such a brilliant job of like pulling you in and describing these characters that just are larger than life and jump off the page. But what I loved about it is that she did not shy away from writing something a little darker. It's not your typical romance in that her characters are somewhat flawed, but her protagonist is dealing with, she has migraines, like severe migraines, and the male lead has also got his issues as well. And so they're not these like shiny, happy, wonderful, everything's great characters. They're, they're kind of real people going through real problems. And it's super smart and interesting and sexy. 
A couple of your picks are set in places that seem made for summer. Tell us about the Paper Palace. That's set on Cape Cod. Yes, The Paper Palace is this beautiful, beautiful novel by Miranda Cowley Heller that really just took my breath away. It was beautifully written. Like I think of it as a literary, more literary novel than not. And it's this woman who is 50 years old and, you know, she's got a wonderful British husband she's in love with and three kids. It starts out the, the very first scene. It's a morning after she has just had sex with the guy she loved growing up while their spouses were like in the other room or something to that effect. And so it goes back and forth in time, like the course of this woman's life, but also a 24 hours when she has to make the choice does she go with this guy or stay with her husband. And the entire time it, it reads like poetry, the way she describes Cape Cod and these little lakes and the beach and the water and the trees and the woods. And it kind of picks you up from wherever you are and puts you down in that space. And it was just a a gorgeous, gorgeous read. I gather that one of your picks involves a less than romantic premise, but one that a lot of people deal with, and that's divorce. It's uh, Before I Let Go by Kennedy by Ryan. By Kennedy Ryan. So it's a couple who are divorced, but they're still both very attracted to each other. And they re-fall in love, and they're kind of discovering what made it good the first time. But what I loved about this story is that it's not the simplistic story. They've gone through a huge tragedy and there's more going on than just the attraction between two people. And it's also like uh, Seven Days in June, the lead characters are Black. They're both African-American. And it's beautiful to see these characters have multi-dimensional lives, be flawed in certain ways and strong in certain ways and human and not have to falling to the stereotypes of what it is to be a Black woman in Atlanta in 2022 or whatever it is. It's beautiful that we have writing out there that kind of shines a light on that. Another one that you picked out, and because we work in audio, of course, this would stand out to us. And this is a book about an audio narrator called Thank You for Listening. And this is by Julia Whalen. Yeah, Julia Whelan, and she's actually a, a friend of mine. We met at a writer's conference. She's just super smart, a beautiful writer. And she gets, because she's an audiobook narrator, she gets voices. And her character is is flawed in dealing with the tragedy in her past. She is differently abled. She's She's blind in one eye. She's lost one eye. And like Julia herself, she was an actress, and now she's an audiobook narrator. And she ends up building this relationship with another audiobook narrator who she's been, you know, assigned to do a project with where they're both recording one story together and he's doing the male leads and she's doing female leads. And so it's a lot of, in many ways, it's epistolary. She's, there's a lot of letters and emails going back and forth and then texts and, and you're watching them build this relationship when they're not, they can't see each other. They're not in the same room. And so it's so interesting when you don't have that pressure of, well, this is a date and you just kind of fall in love with the words and you're kind of cheering for these characters to get together and it's a romance. So they do, um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's really, it's really well done. It's really well done and smart. And she does this thing when she's kind of dissecting romance novels and the way romance novels are received by the general public within a romance novel. It's very meta in that way. It's really brilliantly done. That's Robin Lee. She is the author of the idea of you. Thank you so much for these picks. Thanks for having me.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. People normally love to hear birds sing at sunrise, like these featured on the Audubon Society's YouTube page. But residents of Pinecrest, Florida, are begging some birds to stop. Wild peacocks are overrunning the Miami suburb, and Pinecrest has asked veterinarian Don Harris to control the peacock population. Don Harris joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. People know I'm not a big fan of birds, right? But do peacocks actually pose a threat to humans outside of being noisy? So, I mean, the three things they do is they contaminate sidewalks and driveways and patios and make it pretty slippery. So there have been accidents related to peacock poop. Um, they damage cars. They attack their reflection in the door of a car or on a sliding glass window. And I mean, I've seen some vicious damage to a car door. And then the noise that you referred to, a peacock's scream outside a sleeping baby's window is not a welcome thing. And so your solution is not spaying and neutering. This is a, a, a vasectomy campaign, right? Yeah. And the most important factor in this whole process is recognizing that so the male peacock is polygamous and the females, the peahens, are loyal. Okay. So by sterilizing the male, you prevent a half dozen, seven, ten females from reproducing. Mm. It's important to note, I, you mentioned the neutering. If we neutered the males, we would certainly stop them from reproducing like you do in cats and dogs, but we would also eliminate their dominance. So the procedure is simply disconnecting the testicles from the rest of the reproductive tract. So they retain their testosterone levels, they retain their dominance and their cocky qualities. They keep their females, but they're sterile. It sounds like a good deal for the peacocks. I don't want to speak for them, though. I mean, <laughs> the, the vasectomies, it is ridiculously easy and safe. It takes me about three minutes per testicle. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we started off this conversation talking about how loud the birds are. I know you said that the peacocks will remain, you know, kind of cocky and, you know, have all their testosterone. Will they be quieter, though? Not a bit. This is not going to change their personalities one iota. Okay. There's short-term sacrifice for long-term gain. The goal is not to eliminate the population. The goal is to stop it from expanding as much as it is, because what I'm seeing as a veterinarian are more injuries from cars, more dog attacks, more illness, because the population is exceeding the carrying capacity of the environment. So how long do you think it would take to get the population to a reasonable size? Well, the males begin females in early spring, and then most of the reproduction is through spring into early summer. I think it'll take two or three seasons to see a difference. And I think the difference people will see are fewer babies running around. That's Don Harris. He's a veterinarian in Miami, Florida. Thank you so much for speaking with us. You betcha.
is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Another Massachusetts company is facing a lawsuit from the descendants of a woman whose cervical cells have been used for research for decades without compensation. A couple of weeks ago, the family of Henrietta Lacks settled a lawsuit with Waltham-based Thermo Fisher Scientific. Now her family has sued Ultragenics. The California firm's operations are largely based in Massachusetts. A Massachusetts man is facing up to five years in prison for making threats against Arizona's governor, Katie Hobbs. 38-year-old James Clark of Falmouth pleaded guilty to a charge of sending a bomb threat to an elected official. Prosecutors say Clark sent the message to Hobbs in 2021 while she was Arizona's Secretary of State. Hobbs faced several threats for her role in certifying the 2020 presidential election in Arizona for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. In case you are curious about what could be in store for celebrating a popular dessert, then you can take part in tomorrow morning's virtual public meeting of the Massachusetts Dairy Promotion Board. The agenda includes a discussion of the plan to create a so-called ice cream trail. At Fenway Park this afternoon, the Red Sox play the Tigers. It is 74 degrees in Boston with some showers, a chance of thunderstorms today. Highs in the low 80s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture with the Beantown Get Down Hip Hop Dance Event, August 19th on City Hall Plaza, boston.gov slash beantowngetdown. On this week's Wait, Wait, actor Dak Shepard talks about a very disappointing date. For the amount that I paid for this thing, I was expecting a little more than cuddling. Yeah. I'm Peter Sagal. I think you will be satisfied with what we have lined up for you on this week's News Quiz, also with Donny Osmond and the Barefoot Contessa. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Wednesday marks one year since President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. A big chunk of the massive spending bill targets climate change. To understand how the federal money helps the green transition, we're looking at one program in Maine. Last month, thanks in part to new federal subsidies from the IRA, Maine announced an ambitious goal. It plans to install 175,000 heat pumps for homes and businesses by 2027. Governor Janet Mills of Maine joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So what makes heat pumps so good that the state wants to install them? Well, heat pumps are affordable, heating and cooling appliances, actually. They are affordable and they are efficient. Now, Maine has one of the oldest housing stocks in the country. 
And we also spend more money on heating oil for home heat than any other state per capita. 60% of our homeowners in Maine spend money on oil and propane for heating appliances in their homes. We send about $4 billion out of state every year. There's no need to be filling the coffers of those companies that pollute the air. And it's so important to prioritize better heating and cooling appliances and other measures to fight climate change. So what impact will the federal dollars that are coming in from the Inflation Reduction Act have on the state's climate goals? Well, a great deal of impact. The IRA is a big benefit to us in Maine. We're using, I think, $70 million of that and spreading that across the state to encourage people to find incentives and rebates for not only homes, but schools and town halls. And thousands of homeowners now have heat pumps, heating and cooling their homes and understanding that they're not contributing to climate change. They're helping us fight climate change by reducing harmful carbon emissions. We've also spent some of that money in training up pump installers. Almost 600 people have been trained to uh, install heat pumps by the community colleges, and we use some federal money for that as well. So we originally set a goal of installing 100,000 new heat pumps in Maine by 2025, and we did that two years early. So now I've set a new goal of 175,000 new heat pumps uh, by the end of 2026. I know that Maine's known for its independent thinking politics and even issues around energy efficiency and clean energy have become very polarized. Have you heard any pushback from constituents arguing that the state should not be in the business of, you know, helping people buy these appliances or promoting these sorts of appliances? I think we got bipartisan support in the budget and bipartisan support for using Inflation Reduction Act monies towards heat pumps because it helps people, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, young or old, or Green Party or no party, you know, it helps everybody. People want to save money here. We're kind of frugal as a rule. And uh, people hate spending all that money on oil and propane for, for winter heat. So I don't hear that kind of pushback on this particular program at all. Do you know generally how much people will save by getting a heat pump versus using uh, heating oil, which I know the price of that can skyrocket, go up and down, depending on the oil market? Well, it was really brought to our attention last year when oil and gas prices went zooming through the roof. And uh, it's so volatile. So it's hard to predict how much people will save, but at least two or $300 a year. And in Maine, we have some pretty tough winters and people hate to fill up those oil tanks. They just hate it. And uh, this is a lot easier and more comfortable, more dependable, really. You know, July was the planet's hottest month on record. We keep seeing more and more wildfires and heat waves and climate-related disasters. As a governor, do you feel a sense of urgency to spend more money on these programs uh, targeting climate change, especially knowing that the way we power our homes, the way we fuel our cars, these are the main drivers of climate change. Absolutely. We're seeing that. And you know, the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than about 99% of the remaining water bodies across the world. And we see it. The fishermen see it. 
The marine resources people see it. The hospitality industry sees it. So that's happening. And that's why, among other things, we formed partnerships with our towns and cities and tribal governments to see where they might sort of buck up their communities. Where might they save money and help us fight climate change? Whether it's riprap, whether it's uh, building code issues, whether it's... uh, you know, saving on water and energy here and there and everywhere. Every town is different, but we're looking at it and help using this federal money, helping towns and cities become more resilient to climate change. That's Maine Governor Janet Mills. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Later today on All Things Considered, a surprise release from a Colombian singer who is on a road. I'm all the time saying people should go more with their hearts and what they feel because if we're going to live in this world and we need to work for something, it's going to be better if you're working in something that you really like. Carol G smashed records with her February album, and now she has another one full of remixes and new stuff. Generally, when an artist comes straight out of the gate with a kind of bonus record after they've released a big album, it doesn't quite hit all the time. But I must say, Carol G coming back with her bonus Bichota season is actually quite fun. Listen this afternoon for a review from our friends at NPR's Alt Latino podcast. You can hear it on your radio, online at npr.org, or at your station's website. How deep would you dive to retrieve something or someone you lost from the past? In Daniel Krause's new book, Whalefall, 17-year-old Jay has one hour of oxygen to make it to treacherous depths along Monterey, California, and bring back his father's skeleton. But before he can, he's swallowed alive by a giant sperm whale. Krause's novel is a thriller, and it really gets the heart pumping. But even as almost every chapter leads with Jay's oxygen depleting, there's still time to reflect on his regrets, on his upbringing, on his father. The book is really about death in a lot of ways. I mean, the the story begins with the diver's father already dead. And the idea of a whale fall, which is a giant whale who sinks to the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean and the corpse lands, what it really does is it creates life and it creates centuries worth of life because of its decomposition. And I thought it was kind of a beautiful metaphor for what the book is about in, in that there are good deaths and there's bad deaths. And the best death of all, I think, is when you can die and your death means something to others, whether that's you're passing along something biological, you've got a family, you're leaving behind art, or you've just touched people in some way. I have to ask you about the pace because what I found was some chapters are super short. They're just like a sentence. They flash back and forth in time. How did you go about planning the writing for this and the structure of this? My idea was that I wanted the chapter breaks to feel like gasps for air. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the reader to constantly be aware of how much air he's losing. You know, the chapter headings are all 
essentially telling you how much oxygen he has left. Mm. So with the short chapters, you're constantly gasping and constantly having to, to sink them back down to the drama. And it alternates between what's going on inside the whale and, and these flashbacks. One thing that the main character in this story, Jay, that he has is this wealth of knowledge about diving and about sea creatures that he got from his father, who he has a very difficult relationship with. But this book is full of information. Are you a diver yourself? How did you learn all of this? <laughs> well, I grew up in Iowa, so so you won't um, dive. In. There's not a lot of. <laughs> There's not a lot of oceans in Iowa. <laughs> There's some sort of uh, gross lakes. No, I, I, this book really is the opposite of the old adage, write what you know. I knew absolutely nothing about whales. I knew nothing about diving. knew very little about the ocean. So I was starting with nothing. You know, like usually when I start a book, I've got an idea of a plot, and then I'll kind of research to kind of fill in the gaps but with this, I had to front load the process with about three months of intense interviews with uh, whale scientists and diving experts. Yeah. Getting to, I guess, the heart of the book, the stomach of the book, the intestines of the book. Jay, he gets swallowed by a giant sperm whale. That's not giving anything away. But while he's in the whale, he's alive. He's thinking about his father, Mitt, and his regrets. Talk to us about this relationship with his dad. Yeah. Well, you know, when I came up with the premise of the book, it immediately struck me as something really primeval almost. And it reminds us, I think, of when we used to be beings that had to worry about being swallowed, that had to worry about being eaten. And centuries of domination have sort of made that fear go dormant, but it's still there. And so I wanted to pair that with a relationship that also wasn't overly complicated. I wanted it to be something that was simple and everyone could understand. And the simplest relationship is the first one we have, which is child and parent. Yes, Jay and his father have a troubled relationship. You know, Mitt was a man of the sea, a local diving legend, but also the kind of guy who couldn't hold down a job and felt emasculated by his domestic life and just wanted to be out in the sea. And he wanted to mold Jay in his image. And Jay didn't want that. They ultimately, through some terrible things that the father did, became estranged. So Jay leaves home for a year, and that's when Mitt gets cancer and dies and... Jay never sees him, never visits him on his deathbed. So when Jay is swallowed, he begins under the influence of the methane in the whale's stomach and the injury and the panic to conflate the whale with his father, almost as if the whale is his father because his father died in the same waters the whale swims in. So the book becomes one of reconciliation, that the father and the son have to sort of reconcile their regrets of how they treated each other if Jay has any chance of getting out. What do you think about that? Because, you know, the relationship between a parent and a child, like in a way, a, a parent can almost swallow a child whole in the sense that your whole life, right, can be 
whether you are running away from who the parent was, whether you're trying to live up to what the parent wanted you to be, you can be consumed by who your parents were and what they did and did not do. Jay does seem to come to the realization there were good moments with his father, but there were a lot of bad moments with his father. Does reconciliation mean forgiveness? Does it mean letting go? Does it mean accepting? I don't think it necessarily means, has to mean any of those things. The book is divided into two sections, and uh, those sections are drawn from my reading of the book of Jonah. And those sections are titled Truth and Mercy. I mean, there are truths. There are the facts of what Jay did to Mitt and what Mitt did to Jay. And I'm not saying they're equal. You know, I think Mitt was worse to Jay than Jay ever was to Mitt. But the second section of the book titled Mercy points toward or hopes for a better response, a, a way to to understand that we've all been part of ugly truths. And can we, when the chips are down and particularly when, when life is ending, can we show mercy? And that's not a, something that I can really answer, you know, in a kind of blanket way, but it's a question that the book really wrestles with. And, well, I have to ask, this is all about fathers and sons. Did you draw from your own personal relationship with your father for this story or from, you know, your relationship with your parents or a family member? Well, I mean, I would, I would not say that my father's is like Mitt. <laughs> Mitt is pretty, like uh, <laughs> is pretty brutal. It was more that I was drawing from things happening around me at the time. Like I'm 48, you know, I'm at that age where people I know are starting to die. Just in the last few months, I've had a, a good friend die, and my mm. father-in-law died, and I'm my sister. Sorry. Yeah. is dying right now. Oh my um, gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, she has very little time left to live. That made me think, you know, about whale fall. It made me think about what a good death is. And those sort of ideas collided with the basic high concept idea of being swallowed by a whale and, you know, being swallowed by whether it's your parents or the life that you've lived and the regrets that you have, you know, and being in this moment, whether that's, slowly dying in a bed or dying inside the belly of a whale, you are at this moment, there comes a time where we have to, there's nowhere else to turn. And we have to look into ourselves and, you know, determine, have we lived a life worthy of whale fall? Daniel Krause's new book is Whale Fall. Thank you for joining us. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. And tomorrow morning, start your Monday with Rupa Shanoi here on 90.9 WBUR. You'll get a conversation with a Supreme Court ethics expert about revelations from ProPublica that High Court Justice Clarence Thomas accepted more vacations and gifts from billionaire benefactors than previously reported. It's 74 degrees in Boston, some showers around today, a chance of thunderstorms, highs in the low 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The U.S. is pushing talks to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. But is a deal possible? No amount of normalization with any Arab state can manage to shake this issue without Palestine being front and center. A closer look at the negotiations to bring Israel and Saudi Arabia together and what a deal would mean for the region on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on WBUR. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.